0: Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: I'm Larry Wiesnek, co-president of Cowan and Company, and I'm joined by my friend David Erickson, a former colleague from Lehman and Barclays and currently a senior fellow at the Wharton Business School. Today, David and I will be discussing the new normal. Depending on when you're listening to this, there may be another type of normal at that moment. But for today, David, why don't you kick us off?
0: Great, thanks Larry. So as we're getting more vaccines deployed and the recovery from the pandemic is starting, hopefully, we've also changed gears in terms of the market. How do you see the business environment now versus where it was at the end of 2020?
1: You know, when you ask a question about the environment, I guess we we need to clarify and the clarifying term you used was the business environment. So I'll answer that because I think that's maybe different than the market, or let's at least say the equity markets and the bond market. So in terms of business environment, um, we're clearly uh, here in the U.S. uh, gathering a lot of steam. Uh, You know, I don't think it requires, you know, me or, or any other observer to note that. Uh, All you have to look at is the predictions of GDP growth on one hand, and then the other hand, if you walk around in in most places where uh, vaccine, uh, uh, you know, in arms has gone up, um, you're seeing uh, more restaurants opening, you're seeing, uh, you know, offices getting a bit more crowded, I still don't think we're at the point where people are coming to the office in significant numbers, but there definitely is the appearance of, you know, quickening of the pace I think we and others certainly anticipate that as we can move into the summer months and the second half of the year, that will uh, gain significant um, uh, momentum. And so from a business environment standpoint, I think we're looking at a very, very positive uh, backdrop. And you asked to compare it to the end of 2020, I think at the, in 2020, what we we're seeing was the markets were pricing a recovery once we started to uh, have an increase in vaccinations, et cetera but you weren't seeing it in the actual uh, business numbers. Now it's starting to show up in numbers. Right.
0: So when you think about the recent conversations you've had with clients, what are the big problems they're trying to solve now? And as they look forward,
1: what are they most nervous about? So I think that we have to just you know start with the basic human issue that our clients have, which is, you know as they get beyond the initial concerns they've been working through for their own health, their family's health, and that of their employees, um, you know, and let's assume that we're working through that because of the increase in vaccinations, et cetera. They, right. I think they then turn to the practical implications for their business. So l- let's continue with the earlier question about vaccinations. I think the first thing they worry about is what will it look like in terms of going back to the office and uh, how do they do that? If they've been working in a uh, mostly at, at home, what will the flexible office of the future look like? And how will that impact their business? So I think that's kind of step one. I think step two is uh, focusing on what will the business environment be like in a world where, um, you know, things start opening up more. So for those who are in the manufacturing space, um, they're thinking about redundancy in their supply chain. They're worried about, well, okay, the U.S. is opening up more, but how about if I'm reliant on goods that come from other parts of the world where, uh, we still have significant challenges. so do I have to localize my supply chain more? That's definitely a conversation we're having with folks in the consumer space, industrials, tech for that matter. Um, folks are worried about what's happening in the semiconductor space where we have a shortage. Uh, you know if you think about so much of what we learned during the last year and the business that worked're we're, we're tech enabled and driven by uh, you know the internet and uh, other, um, right. you know, technologies, which require more, more, more chips. And so that's a problem, because if your plan is that you're going to grow and you have a, a commodity that you need, and in this case, the commodity being uh, you know, semiconductor chips, uh, that's a challenge to their plans. So I think it's, it's, it's fairly kind of standard worries that you'd have, your suppliers, your customers, your people. But in this case, with a significant crystal ball that's not very good, because we're, we're moving from... A world that we understood really well pre March 2020, to a world we've kind of gotten to know the last year, which was mostly a a work from home, uh, no commute, etc. World to now entering into this this next world of this flexible workspace, so to speak, where which is um, unknown, and um, we're going to have to see how that plays out.
0: So as you you talked about a number number of the old economy type companies. Um, but when you think about some of the new economy type companies that you've worked with, whether it be the biotechs or the EV and AV space or ag tech um, and other emerging growth companies, you know private capital markets was a big part of the story last year for many of those companies. In addition, uh, the SPAC market, uh, being able to raise capital going public via merger with a SPAC, uh, grew tremendously last year, really exploded in 2020. Now with something like 430 SPACs out there looking for a private company to acquire, there seems to be a bit of indigestion in the market, um, which is been, you know, which is probably necessary as you see the SPAC market grow. How do you see the market going forward in terms of that, as you look forward?
1: Yeah, so so again, um, I really uh, appreciate the question. Uh, i 'm going i 'm going to lump the the types of companies that you described uh, as the disruptors, so you know disruptive companies or companies in disruptive industries uh, who are you know solving problems of of today and the future with the application of new ideas and uh, often that means new technologies um, you know the you're right that in two thousand and twenty we saw Really, a, a, a significant embrace by the market participants. That's uh, everything from, you know, whether it be the SPAC market, as you referenced, uh, more private capital raised for those type of companies uh, as well, um, but also retail investors, uh, not just institutional investors, embracing the concept that um, there are a lot of different um, entrepreneurs and companies that are um, lining up their resources. To solve b- the big problems of society, and you mentioned climate change, and I think that's a big one because it touches ag tech, touches electric vehicles. Um, there are elements I would say of biotech when you think about what biotech does is you know by providing uh, opportunities for new dr- drug discovery, where um, you know we either uh, make the you know uh, healthcare decisions uh, easier for extending life, or in some cases just Uh, making the, uh, you know, quality of life better. Um, These are all, they all fit into the disruptive uh, engine. And um, I I would say going back to really the beginning of the pandemic, um, it almost was a sea change of embracing those stories in a broader way. You know, because we are a very active uh, participant in the biotech space historically, we've been used to this now for the better part of the last you know, two decades, which is the investor being willing to buy off on the future of these businesses, not necessarily on current revenues. What's changed is we're seeing that now applied to, you know, these other areas. And I think that's a, a, a positive uh, in terms of accessing deeper pools of capital, because as, as we all know, early stage capital series A, let's say, uh, in, is a much smaller market than later stage venture. Then later stage venture is you know that much smaller than say growth equity and then when we get to the public markets it's the deepest pool of of capital so we, we think that's a, a positive development um, you know you asked i think you know from there though how about all these SPACs that are out there and are there in some respect implicit that is are there too many um, what i would say is um you know the like many developments uh of you know new products and in this case it's really unfair to call SPACs a new product. that has been around for you know, over 25 years. Right. But I think that the same embrace of uh, disruptive ideas uh, by the market last year led to an acknowledgement because many of those companies did come to the public market via SPACs. I think there's a broader acknowledgement that SPACs are a very interesting way for um, companies to access the public market. And as a big believer in choice, Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, Do I think it's good that there's 400 plus SPACs outstanding right now? I don't know. We may look back, and there may be a time when there's 800 outstanding. We say, "Oh, how quaint those days in 21 when there were only 400 outstanding." Or we might go back to a world where there's more like a a 50 or 200. I think time will tell on that on that front. But um, there's no question that at the moment, uh, under the current regulatory regime, uh, there are three. You know truly legitimate ways that companies can access the public markets as new entrants. One is the standard initial public offering. Another is uh, via the SPAC market <clears throat> and the others through a direct listing. And um, depending on the company, depending on the situation, they'll select a different path.
0: Right. So um, in recent weeks, it seems like concerns about changing tax policy is started to creep into the market. Um, whether it be, rising rates on corporations potentially or recently in the last couple of days potential raising rates in terms of capital gains taxes um, how do you see and again it's early days but how are both investors and companies thinking about those risks going forward do you think
1: so I, I it's a really complex uh, uh, question because I um, really we have to unpack two separate things at once, both tied to, uh, at least for the US market, uh, increased government spending. Right? So on, on the one hand, what we have is you know, when we talk about rates, um, we saw a, a spike up you know, about a month ago or so on interest rates because of two dual fears, I think. One was uh, the market is going to get hot and in an in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, economic environment of significant GDP growth. Um, shouldn't the long bond be uh, you know, trading off? And we saw that initially. You then throw in the, the fact that there's discussions of you know, an infrastructure bill on top of the other significant spending. And there are many investors who are, are worried that that will spur greater inflation uh, because there's too much uh, you know, capital chasing opportunities. Uh, and I think that put pressure on on rates we, we've seen that abate a bit uh, over the last uh few weeks i think as you and i have discussed previously um it, there's enormous mean, just think about our conversation a few minutes ago about these disruptors you know right. one thing about disruptors generally um increase productivity right so we, we we do more with less right less resources used to get certain output in that scenario that's downward pressure on rates uh, and so we're seeing that tug of war and i think we've being in that tug of war for a while uh, over the next you know it could even be 12 to 18 months until either we see inflation um you know creeping up uh or not and, and that'll be the ultimate determination the market will determine that it won't be the fed it won't be any other central bank the markets will will judge and it'll be driven by the the actual macroeconomy and inflation the recent you know in particularly the last week or so uh you know uh and even days uh, you know the the focus on tax policy I think is is a bit more uh, of a challenge for corporates and for companies um, and again I say that because rising rates if it's because the economy is doing really well corporates are doing well in that environment so you know, it, it doesn't right. really matter if I if I have slightly higher borrowing costs but I'm got great revenue growth you know net net that's a, a positive and it's my margins are so strong I think um, taxes affect everyone because it's a friction cost and you know without getting into a Public policy debate as to whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing to have higher taxes. I think when you change the rules, or there's a fear that the rules would be changed. So think of it as if there are increased taxes, all of a sudden it is incrementally more expensive for the corporation if it's on corporate taxes, for the investor who invests in US assets if it's capital gains tax. That changes the rules of the game. And if I change the rules of the game in a way that's going to reduce the value of an enterprise, right, or reduce the value of my investment, there's only one way for stocks to trade off that. They have to go down, right? And um, and that means increasing the cost of capital, etc. So net-net, I think the market's pricing in what's the likelihood of some of the more extreme uh, rumors as it relates to what might be the outcome of uh, changes in taxes. And that, that's going to continue to get priced in over time. And as we hear oh, no, no, you know, capital gains won't be that high, it'll be lower, that'll be a positive for the market. Uh, as we hear, no, it's gonna be higher tax rates, that'll be a negative. Um, and, and I do think um, over time, it will fade into noise, meaning net net in the end, the most important thing is, what are the future profits of the corporation? How many years out till those happen? And what, how do I discount those back to today? And so as we get more clarity on what tax rates will be, it'll get priced in, and then we have a new setters power and we move forward. But right now, it's it's somewhat destabilizing for sure.
0: Right. And and you talked earlier about those two broad groups of companies, and we talked about the new economy disruptors, and for lack of a better term, those old economy, uh, whether it be manufacturing or some of the other industries that that you spoke of, or or those really, I guess that were you know we had the disruptors and now the disrupted. Right during the pandemic, and one of those sectors was the the traditional energy space. Um, you know, last year where futures markets went inverted, and really caused significant challenge for many of those companies in the in the traditional energy space. Um, in the first quarter this year, energy has been the top. I, I believe, if not the top performing S and P sector, one of the top performing S and P sectors. So uh, that's all good news. But the challenge is with the pressure for uh, not just energy companies, but every company now to be more ESG friendly. Do you think there's going to be significant changes in that traditional energy market going forward?
1: So, so I do, and um, you know, uh, it's not just you know my view. Uh, our uh, you know even actions we've taken with our uh, deployment of some of our resources internally uh, highlight our belief that. Um, we're really in the, in, you know, maybe the second inning, the third inning of a complete transition of the way that we both produce energy and consume energy. I think to your point, it's kind of both are important, right? So when we think about how we produce it, I think um, there's an imperative in some respect for everyone involved in the energy sector. That's everyone from those who, you know, extract and, and create the energy or the, the resource, to those that move it, to those that deliver it, to figure out um, how they're going to do that in a uh, more resource-friendly way. Um, so what does that mean? It means that those who are currently big players in the energy landscape um, have to figure out what 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 is their role going to be in a future where over the next decade, 20 years, 30 years, we rely less and less on hydrocarbons and more and more on alternatives. And so uh, we're having lots of conversations, including with uh, our partners uh, at Intrepid uh, Financial Partners, who are an energy-specific uh, M&A firm, where we're talking to companies who are in the historical energy space about that movement. And that right. we'll, I think we're going to see lots of M&A, where they buy new entrants who produ- deliver a different portfolio for them right. of, of resources. I think we'll see some of them embrace technologies that make them um, more... Let's think of it as they'll use less energy, uh, at least less um, old school energy in the production of whatever it is they do. Let's say it's fracking. We're gonna gonna see more fracking done that uses less energy because that old school hydrocarbon effort isn't going away. The country's not ready, the world's not ready to go all electric within five years, 10 years. And so, we're going to have to do first a, a way of being you know, better users of hydrocarbons on the way to a world that's going to be more about you know, electric vehicles, et cetera. And then when we get to that world where we're using you know, uh, you know, alternative fuels, et cetera, um, uh, that space is enormously interesting with you know, just a potpourri of companies doing everything from building out the future uh, you know, grid because we need a smart grid that's gonna be able to fuel uh, all the various components from your house to your vehicle to airplanes of the future that'll be using uh, elect- electricity or hydrogen, et cetera. Uh, but then we're, we also have those who will be delivering it to you, uh, the consumer or to the company. So you know, what, what's the world gonna look like in terms of electric charging stations? Um, what kind of storage do we need? you know, locally, nearby, um, remotely in order to be able to deliver that that future space. And so uh, it's a very exciting time. Uh, I think that um, when we look back in a decade, uh, 15 years from now, uh, it's going to be hard to believe that, you know, most people, if you look out into their driveways right now, we're still driving cars that either were fully, um, you know, gasoline uh, uh, fueled or partially because they're hybrid. Because right. I do think that, You know, by 15 years from now, the majority of vehicles on the road are going to be either electric or there'll be a hybrid gas and electric. We will not have many just pure gas uh, cars out there, you know, in the next uh, generation.
0: So last question, Um, back in 2008 with the financial crisis, things changed pretty drastically in terms of what type of business got done with the pandemic, not only was the type of business getting done changed, but how people did business change dramatically. As you look forward, what changes do you think are going to stick?
1: Well, that's a, you know, trying to, to prognosticate is, is, is a great thing because the one thing you know is you'll definitely be wrong. So you go in and you don't have to worry about being right. Um, so, you know, I'll throw out my, my best guess uh, and, and hopefully directionally, You know we're we're we're, we're correct, but um, the first is flexibility. I think the the concept of the you know uh, five day a week you know in in a given building uh, you know from whatever it is the old nine to five or you can call it you know the you know in some businesses it's far longer hours than that. Um, I think that's gone. I think that um, you know businesses have learned they can operate very efficiently. Um, without the rigidness of the old, you know, we'll almost call it factory floor converted to office space. That's really what it was. When we, we went from an industrial revolution to more of a knowledge revolution, um, people congregated in offices with similar hours and similar structure to go in the factories of the past. I think that so from that standpoint, we're gonna see a, um, a, you know, a significant move towards flexibility. Um, for some businesses, that may mean that the majority of people are um, you know, no longer coming to an office. In others, it may mean you know, some days in the office, some days not in the office. Uh, yet in other places, it might mean every day, people make a different decision on, on where they're gonna work from. And I think what that means is that businesses are gonna have to adapt to that. Uh, that probably means the use of real estate changes because the, the form of the office uh, may have to match that more flexible lifestyle. I think for sure, um, finding hybrid solutions for technology is going to be important. I was on a, a a Zoom recently where it was the first time that um, a group of people were in an office and they were sitting around a um, uh, a boardroom table, and then there were about eight of us that were on by Zoom, and it was the worst Zoom experience I've had because uh, in in a different period those eight people that were sitting around the table would have been eight more faces on Zoom, there would have been 16 of us and we could have seen everybody when they spoke. As soon as you go into, some people are in, in the office, right. or some people are in the boardroom and others are on by Zoom, those who are not in the room feel like the other, they're not there, they're not seeing facial expressions. That, that we're gonna have to evolve. That means you know, systems have to evolve to allow for that. I think that the travel issues are gonna be real um, you know, how much will people put up with, um, commutes in the future for many people, they haven't commuted in a year and a quarter They they may not be willing to go back. And so, uh, interesting question, does that mean that for those who do need to be in the office, they're going to prefer to live closer to their office could mean people that live in the suburbs actually decide they need to be in the city. If they work in a city could mean that people choose to move to the suburbs and have more commercial space out there. Because if the business is, in, is closer to where other people live, um, well, we could have a sat- bunch of satellites rather than one big office connected by video. So those are all the kinds of things that I think I'm hearing from companies as relates to the, the workplace itself. Uh, it, the next issue is just travel, right? right. You know, deals get done in person. We've used, because we had to, um, you know, Zoom teams and other techniques to um, replicate seeing people when you're trying to get to know each other and do deals, I I I surmise that we're gonna have a hybrid there too. Right. That the idea of traveling for one meeting uh, in, in a in a random city just to catch up probably not gonna happen. Uh, but um, you know, will people still go and and see clients and and, and or potential customers and you know go for dinners? I think they will. I think that need to connect uh, for relationship building is a human condition. It's part of who we are, and I don't think that changes. But what I would say, and this is for the good, is um, I don't believe that you're gonna have people come together for an hour meeting to sit around a table to do what they could have done much more effectively from their office. So once a client's engaged, if you think about our business and banking, um, drafting sessions, um, flipping through presentation books. Like we used to do that in person, much more that will now be done using these technologies that we've embraced during COVID. Let so, me give you a specific so example,
0: Larry. That, uh, so, uh, you know, I just went through this recent experience at Wharton, right? Where we just, did, I think I mentioned, we had this FinTech conference over the last couple of days where we had 3000 participants available via Zoom. And I know Cowan does lots of conferences as well. You know, clearly there's lots of efficiencies where you can get those companies that want to speak at those conferences to be basically dedicate a couple of hours versus having to travel somewhere, or to another destination. And similarly for those, whether it be investors or other participants in conferences, it's just much more efficient for them to. Do you think that's going to be a model going forward? Or- I, I do, oh. David.
1: It's a, you know that's a, a a great point. We've we've had so much success. Packaging, what's called content. Right, um, right. Content can be presenters like companies. Pre- you know, content can be our research analyst views. It can be bringing people together. That's all different forms of shared content. Um, you know, we've we've really found that there are things we can do in the virtual world we can't do in the physical world. To your point, you know, a company might be, you know, uh, company management might have to be in California on Tuesday, they can't be in New York or in Philadelphia at Wharton on, on, on Monday, but they can dial in. And that's, that's hugely helpful to getting um, better experiences, better conversations than you might've done in the physical world. I think for the participants, there are some that find it even better. Like, so let's say I'm a, I'm a healthcare investor uh, and I'm interested in some of the trends and technology that impact healthcare. I would never go to a conference that's dedicated to technology. But if there were three speakers at an event during a two-day period that are interesting to me, right. I'll dial in. Um, and so what does that mean? I think the learning that we're taking from that is that like the work experience in the office, um, we think events are gonna be hybrid. That there'll be elements where you know people convene because of the, the dynamic that occurs when you bring, let's say, 200 people together. There's a certain magic to walk in the hallways, sharing ideas, bumping into each other. That's one portion of a convening. But the other portion, which is the delivery of information, can be done via technology. You don't need to be in the room for that. And how you fuse those in the future and make determinations of when is it worth bringing everyone together for that social and business um, uh, uh, thing that happens when you're um, sharing bread and and such, um, versus when do you just do it virtually, is going to be a trial and error. And I, and I think it actually highlights the broader issue. You asked about what people are worried about. You know, If I brought it back to what, we, what I worry about, because we're an employer too. It's not just that we are you know, what do our clients think. Um, it's recognizing that, just like with the beginning of the pandemic, we all knew we'd make mistakes. And the issue is learn from them quickly and improve. We're going to have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in this next 6 to 12 months, where we start to find a new world how we all operate in it and we're gonna experiment and we may, we may do things well and others may, may stumble and they'll learn from us and we'll make errors and you know, so will every employer and so will every individual and you'll learn from others who did it better and we'll get to a better place. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing right now is us all having some humility that we really don't know what's around the corner. So we have to experiment based on making the best estimates and then we uh, go from there and learn and improve.
0: Great. Well, that's a great way to to finish our first conversation on this. We'll look forward to subsequent topics and subsequent conversations.
1: Well, thanks, David. Really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I wish we had more time. And I also look forward to uh, this conversation again. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening in on our conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.